This is TruthWorks Network. You're tuned into Soul Fire. Soul Fire with Dr. Matthew D. Johnson. Where they had two Negro prisoners. 
The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me by orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on the left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress, I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. And here's your host, Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. As we begin to take stock of the uh, Democratic National Convention, um, and there's a lot, and there should be a lot, running through the minds of black black people at this point in history, and uh, there should be some ambiguity. I think um, the feelings of ambiguity and some feelings of ambivalence uh, are appropriate given where we are in our history uh, and given what we are facing in this next election in terms of our options. Uh, I'm going to be um, hopefully uh, uh, particularly frank tonight as we discuss uh, faking the funk or bringing the noise uh, about some things that I believe black people ought to be really thinking about and really concerned with. Um, and uh, some things that I think that uh, it's time for us to assess. Um, our, t our show's topic, let me, let me get that out of the way and get all of it in before I move on. Tonight is the Democratic National Convention faking the funk or bringing the noise, dark whispers in the rumor mill. And that, that question is, is particularly poignant um, because people can look and sound. One thing I've learned in church over the years is that people can look and sound 
like one thing and be altogether something else. And I think part of the problem with American democracy is from its founding, or at least from its initial conception in the Declaration of Independence before the United States proper had been uh, was founded, that in the Declaration of Independence we meet with a lot of high-sounding language. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and uh, the pursuit of, of happiness. It goes on to talk about uh, any government being destructive of those ends, um, that that government itself it suggests undermines its own legitimacy and forfeits its, its right to rule. This wonderful language, very noble values expressed in that language. That language was taken almost word for word from Thomas Locke's Second Treatise on Government. Uh, that's where Thomas Jefferson borrowed uh, those words, uh, most of them, much of them, and um, put them in our first state paper, the Declaration of Independence. I point out the nobility of that terminology because that terminology was used and those inalienable rights were declared by individuals who held slaves, who systematically sexually exploited the slaves, uh, both men, women, boy as well as boy and girl. Um, one of the dark hidden secrets that we insist on hiding in America or acting as though it wasn't as horrible as it was. As a matter of fact, I'd just like to say here as, as a quick aside that it was so horrible evidently that when uh, Michelle Obama, and I am a fan of Michelle Obama, was given one of the most powerful speeches in the history of um, the Democratic Convention in America. Uh, it's so horrible that as she told the story of America and she told the story of people arriving here, um, she neglected to mention the fact that the African-American on whose back the lofty walls of this nation were raised and on whose back the foundation of it was laid. She failed to mention uh, the part slavery as part of that story. And I understand there's certain political realities that she must recognize, but it did bother me some that whenever the story of America is told, other people's struggles, other people's pain uh, gets pointed out explicitly, and ours, the most point, painfully poignant in all of America, American history, is consistently left out as though it's just a big blank space, as though we came over here on Ellis Island and we weren't landed at the daggone auction block. That's a part of America, too. And when we forget that part of America, we tend to forget those very same people in our public policy, which unfortunately has been consistently done over the last 20 years or so in, uh, in the White House, uh, unless, of course, they were making provisions to lock us the hell up for drug drug abuse or drug sale. 
drug drugs that they systematically pumped into our communities and made guns available. But un- unless they're locking us up, we don't get discussed. So when you start leaving out part of the story, you start, unfortunately, I have to critique uh, uh, Sister Obama's speech writer. Um, because when you start leaving out that part of the story, then that absence tends to continue right through and into public policy, which it has, I'm afraid, over the last 20 years, including the last four. And, I, and I'm very, very discouraged about it. But nevertheless, these, these lofty terms, that they use, the inalienable rights that they talk about in this wonderfully noble language. Uh, when we look at history and when we look at what happened, uh, they had an opportunity to bring an oil, to make a fundamental quantum leap forward. But they didn't. They stumbled on the block of slavery. And so instead of bringing the noise, America ended up faking the funk and has been faking it ever since. I don't think, although it may suddenly end, but I don't think that is going to happen this week at the Democratic National Convention. We know it didn't happen last week. Uh, they've raised, the Republicans have raised funkin', faking the funk to a, a new level uh, of uh, sheer denial and hypocrisy. Uh, but the Democrats are not innocent in this matter. And at some point, it is incumbent upon someone um, in this country, uh, in part of the body politic, someone, a part of our world, to assume a prophetic posture and take a stand. We see generations come and generations go. And each generation has its share, has its population of those people who consistently make political compromises in the name of progress. And then history belies the fact that any progress was made at all because each generation thinks that somehow they can avoid the nasty responsibility of telling the truth, as if somehow truth is not an essential component to progress, as if somehow each generation thinks that they have come up with the recipe of how to have progress without confronting the ugly truths of our reality. And each generation has consistently failed, and it has been African Americans who've borne the cross and the weight of that failure. And it looks like we're going to take it into another generation because we have another generation of cowards who want to buy into the game rather than transform social reality. So tonight, I'm opting out. I'm not coming in. I'm a Rechabite. I'm staying in the wilderness. And tonight, for our conversation, I'm going to attempt to use or to use or to embrace the truth over political expediency, over fear of my compatriots, over fear of condemnation, over fear of politics, over the fear of political punishment, over the fear of alienation, and over the fear of isolation. Because at some point, we have to speak the truth. And if Michelle Obama's speech is any indication, it appears to me that the Democratic Convention is not bringing the noise, but they're faking the funk. Because when you tell America's narrative, if you do not speak the truth of slavery, the debilitating effects of which we are living with until this day, 
in every ghetto, in every village, in every hamlet across this country, if you can't even mention the reality of race, mention the reality of slavery in a speech that dares to tell a story of America, how in the hell are we ever going to be free? Democratic National Convention, taking the funk or bringing the noise. Dark whispers in the rumor mill. Let's talk about some of those dark whispers. I'll tell you what the whispers are. When President Obama was elected, he was elected by a quantum of inspiration, unmatched or unseen by anything since we last poured out of churches and into the street to win some semblance of authentic citizenship in this country. That inspiration held back and beat back the forces of racism, white supremacy, oppression, and that inspiration created a space in which people could hope and people could dream. It was this intangible something that had very tangible effects and a very tangible impact. This intangible called inspiration uh, created a space where people could hope. And that space, as long as the inspiration held sway, as long like Samson arms, the in, Samson's arms, the inspiration held back the walls of darkness and created a room, a space in which people could hope and some people even dare to dream. Four years ago, we had that, but it was due to an intangible that had very tangible impact. The tangible impact was people walked and waited in line for hours to vote. Part of the problem with the political process in this country is that too many people under, under it because it can't be measured. They underestimate the power of the intangible. But the intangibles was everything the last election. It was the intangible that fooled everybody. It was the intangibles that made the impossible possible, as the intangible power of God always does in history. That's what makes it so unpredictable and so wonderful, living within the realm of the kingdom. Because as long as you live within that realm, as long as you live under the inspiration of God's presence and God's possibilities, there's always room for hope. It's the intangible that creates the space. Well, this intangible that we call inspiration uh, made it possible to elect the first black man to the presidency. But when Barack Obama was elected, he drew on an account. He drew on an account in which he had made no deposits. He drew on an account that had built up over time through suffering, through pain, through struggle. Black people and others invested in this account, and that account is called hope. And every once in a while, people are willing to withdraw currency from that account but when you withdraw currency from that account, you have to be careful because it isn't easily put back. If it is spent unwisely or foolishly, it takes years, maybe even decades, to build the account back up so that some other visionary, some other dreamer has something to draw on 
in a time of need. Obama drew down on that account. He drew down on the hope account and he used it. He used it to put himself in office. He used it and people became hopeful. But hope, my friends, is a very dangerous emotion. Because the other side of hope is despair and disappointment. So that if hopes are frustrated, they tend to sour. And when they sour, they tend to curdle. And when they curdle, they tend to become toxic. When people hope, they invest. When people invest, they put their souls on the line. They're exposed. They're vulnerable. When people trust you, when they hope, they're vulnerable. And many, many people, millions, made themselves vulnerable because somebody was able to tap into that account and begin to draw down on an investment made over the last 50 years. Now, you say, well, why this particular line of argumentation? I bring this line of argumentation up for a reason. Because many people say that when they look at what the Obama administration's efforts have been, particularly with respect to issues that concern the least of these, um, that he's, his politically expedient decisions uh, were necessitated by a practical emphasis. And when some point out that he did not put up a fight, others point out it is the nature of the political process, and President Obama is indeed, not made this argument myself, is indeed a politician, not a prophet. And that is true. I've made that argument myself, but it is only true to an extent. Because he did not draw on political sentiment when he got elected. He drew on something deeper. He drew on a spiritual reality, and when he did, then he took on a certain spiritual responsibility. And that responsibility is not to disappoint, not to disillusion, let me say. Now, what is the disillusionment I'm speaking of? Am I speaking of the disillusionment of, let us say, the disillusionment of not getting hoped for legislation passed. No. Am I talking about the disillusionment of not winning every battle? No. Am I talking about the disillusionment of um, losing uh, certain seats in Congress or not coming out on top in a particular poll? No. I'm talking about a deeper disillusionment that comes when people suddenly realize that they have been used or when people suddenly realize that you never intended to fight for them or people suddenly realize that this is not about values and principles at all, that suddenly my humanity has in some sense become negotiable and it is a part of a political process. 
Now, I'm not saying this is what happened, but I am saying that there is a danger out there, a kind of lurking, foreboding disappointment or disillusionment that comes when people risk all on a hope and they find out that they get little or no returns. Hope is too powerful an emotion for people to risk because once it's spent, once you spend hope, unless it is returned, unless the investment is returned, once you spend hope, it's spent. There's nothing left. There's nothing left for people to draw on. There's nothing left for people to fight with. And there is a danger because people don't feel fought for. People don't feel stood up for. Uh, People don't feel affirmed. As a matter of fact, uh, many black people quiet as a skeptic and they won't say it because we're too embarrassed. Many black people feel embarrassed at the degree to which they've been ignored. The degree to which the issues that pertain to them have been taken off the table. Why can every other constituency be addressed but us? Why is suddenly being black a bad word? When did that happen? And why would we even cooperate with a rhetor in a rhetorical universe? And why would we why would we elect a, a black president who acted as though black issues were uh, radioactive? And uh, and um, black organizations were off limits. Why would we do that? How do you how do you take pride in that? Where is the dignity in that? So I think that a lot of people are looking for a lot of reasons why perhaps there isn't the excitement that there was in 2008. Uh, why there isn't the excitement um, in the election process or the excitement about Barack Obama. And I think that in some cases, while we are happy to have a black president, we've taken the measure of the man very quietly, almost almost in private, almost like, almost like black people are in dining rooms or dens talking in guarded tongues. And we know now there's little to no returns for us. And so now we're, we're we're left with the same option we've had all along. I once I once had a a, a meeting in the church I was pastoring, and uh, it was about a landfill. And they were trying to put this landfill in the black community, a garbage dump. And um, it was in Clayton County right here in the Atlanta metro area, a garbage dump. They wanted to put it in the black area, of course. And we were having a meeting, and the state sent in a moderator. And uh, in the church I was pastoring at that time, he he was going to moderate the meeting. It became clear that he had an agenda, and so... uh, uh, I decided that we needed to uh, have a different kind of meeting, and he said, "Well, I'm, I'm in charge. The state put me in charge." And I said, "Oh, uh, 
you you must have scheduled this meeting uh, at another location. Because here, the Lord's is charged, in charge, and I'm his spokesman. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a different kind of meeting, and I want you to take a seat if you want to stay. You don't have to stay if you don't want to. And we're going to try to get to the bottom of this. I've got a couple of questions I want to ask people sitting here. Here's a question I asked very simply and, and then sat down. I said, when it was initially decided to put this landfill in the black community, what was the political ratio on the Board of Commission? And after the, the group mumbled, a uh, person said it was four white commissioners and one black. And said, and the chairman was, and they said, uh, white. I said, okay. I said, what is the political ratio now? And there was some more mumbling. And then somebody said, it's three black commissioners and two white groups. And I said, the chairman is what? And they said, black. I said, then why in the hell are we having this conversation? Unless electing black people to office makes a difference, it's going to be hard inspiring people uh, to go to the polls. The black community in America is beginning to run low on a tradition of hope and inspiration that was grounded in a church and a spiritual experience that is itself waning. So the great machinery of spirituality that sustained that hope itself is not as potent as it once was. We're going to have to guard the scarce resource of hope and inspiration very well and use it very wisely in the days to come. If, if we are if we are going to move forward as a race of people and stave off the wave of suffering that's cascading now to our communities, if we're honest with ourselves. Um, but one of the things that we're going to have to do is recognize that electing black politicians will not be as much of an inspiration to black people in the future, maybe in the near future, to vote if their issues continue to be treated as embarrassment by the very black people elected to represent them. I don't care what office it is. There is a reason that we wanted more women elected to political office, because we believe that women's experience would create a different perspective and a different vision, not just because they were women, but because we believe that women's unique experience in America would bring something unique to the table and broaden our vision of government and our horizon of possibilities as we move into the future. There's a reason that we wanted particularly more black people elected to office because we once believed, and, and, and a great, uh, uh, great part of America once believed, that we brought something unique in terms of perspective because of our suffering. And because of that perspective, we wanted more black people in the office because it would mean more concern for the least of these. It would mean a preoccupation with issues of justice and the, and the great universal uh, uh, moral issues uh, of humanity. It meant 
that certain people would be looked out for and certain people would be taken care of because black people elected to office bring that perspective. So it broadens our options. It broadens our horizons. makes things possible that would not be possible unless that experience was brought to bear. But it was because of the experience, not simply because of the color of one's skin. Not black for the sake of being black, but black in office for a reason. Because we brought something different, a different angle of vision, a sense of moral purpose, of mission, a willingness like our forebearers to struggle. What made black folk black folk if it wasn't the willingness to struggle even against all odds for what we believed was right? There are some things worth fighting for. There are some things worth fighting for even if you lose. And there are some things worth losing for. I had a young student at Morehouse College once asked me how did I determine um, my goals and the values that I live by. And I told him I try to live by the value of choosing not what is worth succeeding at, but there are many things worth succeeding at. I try to choose the things that I fight for by asking myself, what is worth failing at? What am I willing to try? What am I willing to attempt and live with the shame of failure if I miss? What's worth living for? What's worth fighting for was determined by what's worth failing at. Because if something isn't, in other words, if the nobility of a cause is not worth you living with the, with the shame or the discomfort of failing at it, it isn't worth fighting for. And I think at the heart of the black experience, this ethic of struggle, and I've written about this um, in, the, in, the, in the book on the just peace um, paradigm of public policy. At the foundation of the black experience in America, I'm talking about African American. I'm talking about those of us whose parents have come through slavery, who have fought down through the years, who have resisted everything from lynching to the ghettos, uh, to the disenfranchisement, to the daily public humiliation. What was at the heart was struggle. We knew we had to struggle. That is the core of our ethic. And I think that black people respect the willingness to do that. And I think some see it um, in uh, President Obama's efforts, but I think that there are many who didn't see it when it came to certain core issues. And that, I believe, ultimately may be at the root of some of this uh, lack of enthusiasm that people are attempting to blame on the homosexual issue. Now, I bring that up because there's been a lot of scuttlebutt in the rumor mill 
among church folk. And if, if the black vote are going to get out in major cities and swing states and help determine this election, it's going to be through the black church. Everybody wants to talk about everybody else, this, this demographic and that demographic being important. But black turnout is going to be key. It's going to be key in Virginia. It's going to be key in Pennsylvania. It's going to be key in urban centers in, in, in Ohio. It's going to be key in battleground state. Black turnout is going to be central. And black people operate off of inspiration. The problem they're saying with the detection of the lowering of the inspiration in the black community or the excitement or enthusiasm has to do with President Obama's stand on gay rights, the right of gays to marry. I think if that is true, that is not the whole story. I think that President Obama's stand on gay rights may have had that effect because there was lurking and the shadows of disappointment looking for something to fix they don't. In other words, there was a general sense of a kind of letdown that was looking for an issue to hang its hat on. And so it became this issue of gay marriage. I think President Obama took the right stand on the issue uh, of gay marriage as a statesman. As a statesman and somebody sworn to uphold the Constitution, I think the very spirit of the Bill of Rights is to protect the minority from the tyranny of the majority. I think that's the posture he assumed, and I think it is correct. As a man of God and a pastor of the church, I have a different perspective when it comes to, to marriage. And that is my right as a Christian to hold to that perspective, to preach about it passionately, and to, and to encourage others to assume that position. But as a participant in a democracy, I have no right to use my religion as an excuse to impose my belief on others through the political process. That's tyranny. And it's wrong. It's morally wrong, and it breaks the social contract. So I think this sense of disappointment has led to a certain kind of uh, importance afforded this issue of gay marriage that it might not have had had there been a stronger cushion of encouragement uh, on some other issues. There needs to be very serious legislation looked at and passed to reform the criminal justice system in this country. The privatization of prisons and the re-enslavement of young black men all over this country and young black women and Latino uh, uh, young men and women all over this country um, needs to be turned back. That needs to be looked into. The Justice Department needs to examine that. We need to look at the constitutionality of a government of the state contracting punishment out. Where is the accountability in that? To take away a man's freedom or a woman's freedom in a democracy is a very serious act. And to contract that out, the state relinquishes its responsibility. I think it's very dangerous, particularly 
when you're in a country that is, is, has as pervasive a problem of race as it does and the maltreatment as it does and, and the maltreatment of people who are easily stigmatized as it does. It's double trouble for black people who fall victim to the criminal justice system. Or who become a who become a a uh, a ward of the state through via the criminal justice system. So these are the kind of things that need to be looked at. These are the kind of things that affect us. We just listened to Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer was talking about what she went through for the right to vote. We sat by relatively comfortably. No resistance. No real protest as 34 states considered legislation to disenfranchise millions of people, primarily black folk, we watched it happen. There was no mobilization. When I saw that, I said, people are discouraged. Because if people were intent on voting, they would have fought any indication of disenfranchisement or the compromising of their right, the opportunity to vote. So the fact that there was no very serious response, no organized response to that issue already suggested to me, hey, we got a problem come November. So as we look at the Democratic Convention and we listen to all those wonderful speeches and we hear them reiterate their commitment to values, what does it mean? if they don't fight for them. What does it mean to hold an ideal if you don't struggle for its realization? The Democratic National Convention, faking the funk or bringing the noise. That's what we're talking about tonight. We want to invite you to join in this conversation and to call in at our number, 914-338-1610. We hope we've inspired somebody to join us tonight. 914-338-1610. You are listening to Soul of Fire, where spirit matters. Dr. Matthew V. Johnson is your host. We'll be right back. Soul of Fire, where spirit matters. Solar Fire is heard on Wednesdays at 10 p.m. only on TruthWorks Network. Spirit Matters Talk Radio. Solar Fire, where spirit matters. This is Dr. Matthew V. Johnson, the soul of fire, where spirit matters. The most powerful force on earth, a soul of fire. To, to, to try to draw the, the moral uh, fault line in the political landscape, uh, 
the political terrain uh, that we presently inhabit and attempting to do so in a way that perhaps um, would help us to better understand the unusual uh, and special place we as African Americans occupy and the unique challenges that uh, we face as a group and the unique implications of our existential location for the country and for the political terrain, contemporary political terrain, the country as a whole. Um, that's what I was attempting to do. I don't know how successful I was at it. I was hoping to reload after a brief intermission and um, redouble my efforts. Um, but I'm back now. I'm not sure whether or not uh, you all have a, a call-in number. If, uh, if one the is a call-in number is 347-838-9852. That is our call-in number, and we hope that you use it liberally. Um, tonight as we uh, try to at least recapture the initial spirit of the discussion and as it was evolving and as we were leading to um, uh, a call in into action. Um, the, the challenge tonight or the thought tonight was the Democratic National Convention uh, faking the funk or bringing the noise. And basically, I was raising the question as to whether or not we can invest anything meaningful in the rhetoric, the high-sounding rhetoric uh, we would be exposed to for the next few days. We know how American politics work. We know that politicians make promises and they lie, get elected. And once they get elected, they act as though their primary responsibility is to get reelected. And that everything is on the table and everything is compromised. But we're not told that. That part's not shared with us. We're not honest with us about it. And it seems that whenever something is sacrificed, I know it is. The most important story, and the one yet to be told in America with any integrity, is the story of African Americans. But the African-American story represents the fault line, the moral fault line, the degree to which the African-American story is grappled with honestly and in any time period in American history is the litmus test and the criteria for determining the amount of integrity in American politics at that time. The degree to which the African-American story is dealt with realistically in any period is the measure of the moral integrity uh, and character of that particular age. For whatever reason, that's how it functions in America. It's something of a litmus test um, for integrity in the American political and cultural terrain. And uh, it's not being dealt with at all. Uh, in this period, with with any integrity whatsoever. The sad fact of the matter is it's not being dealt with when we have a black person 
person at least of African uh, descent uh, on on one side of his family um, in the White House, put there largely because of the galvanization and energy of an African-American community came out of their unique relationship to hope and politics in this country and provided this spiritual engine that drove uh, Barack Obama to success. Um, and we were raising the question of whether or not that energy is there, that enthusiasm is there, and if perhaps that enthusiasm is not there, it is not there not simply because of uh, the, uh, President Obama's stand on the gay rights issue, but because the gay, right is, gay rights issue presented itself as a convenient place for African Americans to pin a foreboding sense of disappointment and an ominous sense of disillusion. It may not be. Um, that may not be the case. But I do think, I mean, for, for a majority of African Americans, but I do think it is the case uh, for a significant number. And it may be a critical number, particularly as we try to reactivate that intangible that brought so many people out to the polls and sustained them joyously while they waited patiently to cast their vote even, even against uh, obstructions and even against attempts uh, to prevent them from exercising their citizenship rights. And um, we need that intangible again. I don't think uh, the people around President Obama, he surrounded himself with um, successful pastors, uh, people who were successful in the pastorate by worldly standards, people who seem to be ideologically uh, similar perhaps, but I don't think he's uh, surrounded himself, unfortunately, with people who understand the dynamic intricacies of the culture and um, people who are successful at manipulating those dynamics are not always the best people at understanding them. They just have an intuitive ability. And so I'm wondering if they're not perhaps missing something. And I'm wondering if perhaps it, it, it is not too late for them to recapture it, I don't know. Um, but I do believe that people have been let down, and rightfully so. I think their hopes have been compromised, and, and I think they have a right, uh, particularly African-Americans, to uh, ask for more. Uh, I mean, we're not poisoned. We shouldn't be treated as if we are politically radioactive, nor should our story be dismissed as if as if it is or treated as if it, as though it is fraudulent or there's something wrong with it um, uh, and that's where I think we are and so I mean if you're embarrassed about my story if you're embarrassed about my pain if you're embarrassed about my struggle then why do you want my vote and why do you look for my car to take people to the polls and nobody wants to say that because it's the first black president everybody wants to be supported but it's sort of like people in church they may not fight the pastor but they'll quietly close their purses, their pocketbooks, or stay at home. Now, this is something that we've seen time and time again. This is a part of black culture, that we have a way of being non-confrontational when our heart's involved. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it sends a very effective message. 
this is no time for us to send the Republican to office, so I hope the uh, people are listening. People want more and expect more out of the Democratic Party than merely faking the funk. Well, let me say this. Let me say this. It's not that they expect more out of the Democratic Party. They expect more for their loyalty, for their loyalty, uh, in exchange for their loyalty than just faking the funk. We don't, we don't, we don't need uh, great speeches. They, they come a dime a dozen. We don't need high-sounding words. We need, we need to see people who, when our values are on the line, are willing to fight for them. I'm tired of the Republicans looking like they're the only people who have people who are willing to fight for their erroneous convictions. It's time that we have people who stand up for us. You don't expect people to stand out in the rain. You don't expect people to stand in long lines. You don't expect people to brave opposition. You don't expect people to fight uh, heartily at disenfranchisement if the political system brings them nothing in return. And I think this is where we are. And I'm hoping um, that more will be done in the days ahead to do something about this loss of um, enthusiasm in the black community. Now, having said that, I do want to say this. I am, I am also deeply disturbed that the gay issue, gay rights issue, the right to marry, is being, um, perhaps even accurately so, is being uh, put before us as a critical issue in determining whether or not African Americans are going to vote for President Obama. Um, this is really unfortunate because there are some critical issues that should determine whether or not we're going to vote for African uh, African Americans going to vote for President Obama. But whether or not gay people have the right to marry is one of them. And uh, it's a sad day uh, in the church if the the people in the church, uh, even against surprisingly uh, some many progressive views expressed from pulpits, people in pews, who are under the influence of these television evangelists, under the influence of this fundamentalism. This is just the kind of thing that many of us have been warned about since 1980, that these people, you think that it doesn't have an impact, but you don't see it until it's too late. These people push these ideological and these theological positions onto our people. We begin to mouth them and mimic them to our congregation. And then at a, uh, at something we could never have predicted, the process of re-electing a black president, this kind of sick, narrow-minded fundamentalism that we've been pushing on our people because it's easy to preach and it makes you sound pious and, and, you, and, and, it, and, it, and it makes you um, sound um, you, you, it makes you feel more make, makes you feel or appear more validated because you sound like these people on television um, has now come back to haunt us because our people have been consistently cultivated to be receptive to the kind of idiocy that we see we see being demonstrated around the country right now on this issue with respect to gay marriage. They've been prepped for it by an idiotic theology 
that has, has, has failed to speak meaningfully to the reality of where we are as a country and certainly where we are as a race. And so this is this is really unfortunate. Caller 111, you're on the air. Brother Matthew Johnson. Yes. Brother Keith Johnson. Hey, Classmate. What's all, all good, man? Um, I, I appreciate getting a chance to hear um, your soul of fire. Uh, it certainly... Uh, brings back lots of pleasant memories from from back in the day uh, when we strolled the, the campus together uh, down at Morehouse, and uh, I'm I'm really happy for you to hear your show. And seeing as I'm halfway across the world, I'm in Australia calling you right now. Um, it's it's always good to hear a familiar voice um, that I'd have to say without a doubt is bringing the noise. Uh, in a legitimate way. Um, so thank you, man. Thank you for for uh, for doing what you do, and I certainly hope you keep on keeping on. Um, uh, but to, I guess to address some of your your uh, your topic tonight, um, I've seen some of the uh, convention. Um, I I think from what I've seen. There has been noise made. I can't necessarily say it's the noise has been brought. I think the uh, governor of Massachusetts, uh, Deval Patrick, may have brought the best noise by suggesting that, you know, the Democratic Party needed to grow, get a backbone and to uh, truly start living up to the principles that uh, they espouse. Um, so in that sense that... Uh, I, I, I've heard it from him. I haven't heard, you know, I taped the uh, the president, uh, or former President Clinton's speech, so I, I guess I'll get a chance to listen to that later. Um, as far as faking the funk, yeah, I, I would have to suggest that there's probably been plenty of that being done as well. Um, I guess looking at it from a worldview, man, it's just it's disappointing that, the other side is even being considered as an option. So in that sense, the Democratic Party and the president certainly um, need to dig deeper and to to really try and inspire those people that you were talking about um, to get them to come back out. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's too late to do that. Um, I sure would like to think that that uh, that. Republican ticket is not going to have a chance of getting elected. Um, you know, we were, we were in Atlanta in 1980 when you know that bomb dropped with a uh, you know the great communicator Ronald Reagan and everything. And so, my gosh, we sure don't need to go back to that um, time again and and make it uh, that much worse. So. Um, and actually, this crew is even worse than uh, Ronald Reagan was. He, um, yes, yeah, I'm in agreement right. with that. Yeah, they're further right than Reagan, uh, if you can believe that. And yeah. um, <laughs> what the 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 thing he's that we're looking at in terms of uh, bringing the noise is that the fact that the governor of Massachusetts is beginning is we're beginning to hear at a convention things like. Democratic Party needs a backbone is uh, is encouraging. 
because it, 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 it at least has to be broached in order for the idea has to be broached publicly and in a proper setting for it to begin to take on some political force, some political reality. So that is that is very encouraging. Um, but the fact of the matter is that you know it's a problem when they start recognizing it and admitting it. That's right. That's right. But they have to understand that merely admitting that that's a problem uh, and that we... We, we hear them admit that's a problem. is not enough to reestablish the bonds of trust that you've forsaken by by compromising and gambling away uh, the values and the uh, policy policy or, or orientations that we hold dear. In other words, yeah. you know, it's sort of like these people. Uh, we have this problem uh, now, Keith, in this country where everybody thinks that they can say any and everything and then come back and say, I misspoke. Or I make that, a mistake. That's a, yeah, that that tends to really be a, a favorite one, huh? Um, you said with you know, person said what they said. Um, it doesn't take back what they said. And um, I personally, some of these misspeaks or whatever, these apologies, these half-hearted or, or you know, backhanded apologies, I'd rather they just go on ahead and say, well, doggone it, I meant what I said. So, so what you gonna do about it? That's and the true honesty about it, and just say it. You say what you mean, and mean what you say. And the reason that we we believe that and, and would accept that is because we know that that has integrity. And my point is that right. just admitting that we got a problem with backbone, that doesn't mean that the, the problem with backbone is fixed. Nobody said anything about how they're going to fix it. Nobody said what they were going to do. Nobody gave right. us anything to, that by which we can hold our political leaders accountable for what they renege on once the lights go out and the awning is drawn up and the carnival is over and everybody goes home to go to work. We need some method, some or some way, some criteria holding these people accountable, morally accountable, to the people whose hopes and whose aspirations they have become the self-appointed custodians of. They have made themselves the custodians of people's deepest aspirations with promises of treating them with respect and treating them with the sacrality that they deserve. And then when the lights go out, they act as though the statements were never made. And so when I ask, are we bringing the noise, I mean, are we bringing the substance behind these claims that are going to restore the kind of integrity where people believe in what they're doing? They believe that their vote will make a difference. They believe that fighting to resist disenfranchisement will ultimately have an impact on their daily, uh, day-to-day bottom line. And so this is what we want to do. Uh, 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 Keith, I appreciate you uh, listening. I appreciate your comments and your conversation with me uh, on Facebook. Please keep in touch, okay. and let's continue this conversation. Definitely, brother. Okay, take care. Good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew Johnson at TruthWorks Network, where spirit matters. Most powerful force on the earth, a soul of fire. We hope you'll join us next week. Soul of Fire. Spirit matters.